This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, November 18th, 2022. Thanks for being with us. This is your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. With me on the phone to help us start this Friday is Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, welcome back. Hey, again, thanks for having me. We've got so much to talk about. Let's first uh, start off with some city business in Fort Smith. I think one that there are probably a lot of people happy to see uh, taken care of, and that is a police and fire pay plan for the future. Yes, the um, the big news out of that is the um, it's an almost 24% uh, across-the-board pay raise for police officers. It'll take place over the next two or three years. Uh, it was a pretty aggressive plan when Chief Danny Baker proposed it um, last year. And, um, and to support that, I go back a little bit further, uh, you know, almost 57% of city residents in our May 24th election, special election last year, or it was held during the primary, I should say, uh, not last year, but approved the sales tax extension. And part of that money uh, goes to the Fort Smith Police Department. It's the first time the, the police department's ever had any dedicated sales tax funds. And so um, what Chief Baker proposed is this, again, it was very aggressive. And when he, I remember when he first rolled that number, that tw- almost it was 23.87%. And why that's so specific is it, for the most part, gets entry-level officer pay up to around $50,000 a year, which... Um, you know, the Arkansas State Police said that's what they're going to start people at. So to be competitive um, and to, you know, fill out that 164 uniformed officer department, he had to have competitive pay. Um, and it's not just Fort Smith. I think probably all communities across the country are seeing a lot of competition for good qualified police officers. But the board has approved that approved that this week, um, and it will begin. There'll be one point, a little over $1 million, uh, for pay raises in 2023, uh, $2.3 million in 2024, and then $2.86 million in 2025. So it'll be about a $3 million extra um, budget increase going forward. Also, they approved uh, the plan to hire to beginning – um, I think it is in 20, um, beginning in 2028, they'll hire five new officers. And so that will give them a little bit of, because they're going to have some of these precinct offices around the city to kind of spread the, you know, the, the police uh, presence around pretty, um, aggressive package. Uh, they have the money for it through the sales tax, but the board approved it. Um, they also approved more money toward, um, they approved some more money, I, I think around, Five million for safety center uh, for Fort Smith PD in Sebastian County, 911 public safety system. Approved some more projects for the Fort Smith Fire Department. The Fort Smith Police and Fire Department, in terms of funding, I know there's a lot of politics around defund the police or whatever, but the city of Fort Smith has gone in a completely different direction and they're funding more adequately funding not only police but fire department. Mercy Fort Smith is heading in a new direction with their new primary care clinic. It's uh, going to be on Towson Avenue. Ground was broken earlier this week. What can you tell me about it? Yeah, it's um, it's been a long awaited. They had a primary care center over in the in, in the Phoenix Village Mall property that BD Capital Group had developed. Uh, we've talked about that quite a bit. Um, they got hit by a tornado in May 2019, tore the property up, and they just they were in the process of you know, getting a replacement and then this COVID thing hit. But so they're finally getting around to it. And it's still going to be on uh, the former Phoenix Village Mall property, but just at the corner uh, of, of uh, Towson and Phoenix. Um, so it will be about a $3.6 million facility um, staffed with about eight folks, including one doctor. Mercy wants to add two to three more doctors over time. I don't want to say that part of Fort Smith is underserved, but, because, for example, Baptist Health has some facilities in, in that area, but it's a, it'll it'll be a good it'll be a welcome addition to the community in that area uh, for primary care. You know, it is not unusual to talk about pecan pie this time of year. Thanksgiving's next week, <laughs> but the reason pecan pie is mentioned at TalkBusiness.net right now has nothing really to do with Thanksgiving, does it? 
No, it, bourbon pecan pie at that. Exactly. Um, no, yeah. So uh, Cal Parker, who's um, CEO of the Arkansas College of Health Education, uh, was kind of generous with his time recently and um, really gave me about two hours to do an interview. And the focus of my story was, because it doesn't seem like it, but it's been, Kyle, it's been five years since the first class at the Arkansas College of Osteopathic Medicine started. Um, of course, the, the whole college has been almost 10 years in the making. But So I just wanted to sit down with him and kind of do a how did we get here kind of story. And it turned out to be interesting. There was just a series, and I'll run through these quickly, just a series, because it's much more complex than this, but I'm going to give the top line version. But he was, he knew that because of the sale then of Sparks Health System uh, to HMA, Health Management Associates, back in uh, 2009, that they were going to have a considerable amount of cash. And he asked Melody Trimble, who was the former head of uh, H of uh, Sparks in Fort Smith, what would you do with that much cash? And they were at this lunch with Kyle Parker's mother, Loretta, Melody Trimble, and, and Mr. Parker. And she said, without hesitation, he said, he, she said, I'd build a DO school, DO medical school. And he admitted in the interview, he said, he, he, said, he didn't know what the hell DO school was, never heard of it. But he got to looking into it. And so that kind of planted the seed. Then they were able to kind of address some liabilities from the sale of the hospital, which gave them a little over 70 something million where they thought they might only have 2 million. So that was an interesting move. And then a couple of gentlemen, one Jim Walcott, uh, who was on the board of what was then Sparks and then what would become the Deegan Foundation, challenged the other board members essentially to quit, quote, nibbling around the edges and do something to move the needle for the Fort Smith region. So they went way out on a limb to build this DO school. Uh, one of the other keys that just landed, uh, Ivy Owen, who was then head of Fort Chaffee Redevelopment Authority, gave them 200 acres, just here's the property. They've since bought a lot more property, spent, bought $6 million worth more property around it. 200 acres has grown into 573 acres, but it's just a series of things that fell into place. Now, and I don't want to minimize it because there's a lot of people doing a lot of hard work making what at the time were large decisions, but they turned out to be very good decisions. And so now we have this facility that, and it's going to keep growing. You know, they've got about 200 staff now, uh, more than 700 students on campus, about a $600 million economic impact. Parker says, just hang on. He, he teased they're going to have a couple of new big announcements and programs hmm. that they're going to announce early next year. I know a lot of people are excited, Kyle, about the, the F-35s coming to town in this new mission for the 188, and they, everybody talks about it being a big economic development and a game changer. The game changer has already arrived in Fort Smith, and it's, it's Arkansas College of Health Education. I just wanted to get that story out there, and, and hopefully people will kind of catch on to what's going on out there. It may be a smaller game changer, but ready to drink. Cocktails are going to be canned soon in Fort Smith. I mean, that's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's now it's Pernod Ricard is the, is the owner, but most people remember it as the Hiram Walker plant in Fort Smith. But yeah, they're going to invest. They announced uh, this week they're going to invest $22 million. At about 50 jobs, which in terms of the manufacturing sector in the Fort Smith region, that's always welcome news. The plant now has about 220 employees. But, yeah, it's a ready-to-drink. That facility does a lot of bottling, a lot of drinks that people probably wouldn't realize. They don't – for example, many – a thousand years ago when I worked at the Fort Smith Chamber, they – one of the reasons I drink Maker's Mark now is because they used to bottle and blend Maker's Mark here in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They don't do that anymore, which – I think is a shame. Um, there should be a law against that, but they don't. <laughs> right. But um, so, but anyway, again, good news. You know, t- the the thing about this kind of announcement is, it's not just that they're investing twenty two million and it will create fifty jobs. But when corporations, when big multinational corporations make these kind of investments, it puts some security into that facility. They typically, these corporations typically don't make those kind of investments in plants that they don't see a long-term future exactly. with. So that, I think that's the other benefit. 
All right. Well, we get we we covered bourbon pecan pie. We covered ready to drink cocktails. <laughs> All right, we're ready for a. Uh... And we've got and we've got an expanded police force in case you drink too much of, of any go. of that. I guess there you go. You can read about all of this and much more at talkbusiness.net. Michael, we will not talk next week because of Thanksgiving. Our schedules are all uh, sort of cattywampus, but we'll be back together in two weeks. How's that? That works. That works for me, cattywampus and all. <laughs> all right. Happy Thanksgiving, and thank you so much. Yes, sir. Yo, it's me. Give me a call when you get this. Love you. Hi. Hi, Nana. Love you. Yo, wait, Nana. Where are you? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hi, Anna. Could you, uh, we were wondering... Hi, I'm Anna Pope, Growth Impact Reporter here at KUAF, and sometimes I must remind myself to be thankful, even during November. But this is not hard to do when it comes to my siblings. Not only have they helped raise me, but they push me and make sure that I am the best version of myself. I am thankful for every speech contest, recital, graduation, concert, class, fair event, and game I attended and was dragged to. And I cannot wait to see what they do next. Let us know what you are thankful for through the Connects tab on the KUAF app or by calling the station at 479-575-2556. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. About 50 years ago, the United States Geological Survey flew planes over parts of southern Missouri and central Arkansas to collect data with magnetic and radiometric imaging equipment. It would be a bit reductive to say that technology has improved since then. Thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law passed by Congress, USGS has been awarded $64 million to upgrade their geophysical surveys, geological mapping, and LIDAR surveys. And the motivation behind that funding is to map these areas for critical mineral potential. That's Anne McCafferty, a research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey. Yeah, we're calling this a renaissance in airborne geophysical surveying because like you uh, noted, the last time we were really in here and flying, it was the U.S. Geological Survey who flew this area along with the Department of Energy. That was in the 1960s to the 1980s. I passed physics by the skin of my teeth in high school. And so when I heard talk of low-flying, large airplanes going across the sky, I imagined they'd be decked out with massive cameras and glass-bottom floors in the airplane. But then I realized that imaging can happen with more than just cameras. Here's Dylan Connell, a geophysicist with the USGS. These planes, we're using a fixed-wing aircraft for the survey. We are going to fly this aircraft along lines that are spaced 300 meters apart. And so we will do that in sort of a grid pattern across the whole survey area. This airplane has a boom that you can kind of see sticking out the back of it there. In the back of that boom, there's a magnetometer that uh, is recording uh, the magnetic signature of the geology beneath the aircraft. And uh, there's also a sensor housed inside the aircraft itself um, that is uh, sensitive to concentrations of, of certain elements such as potassium and uranium or thorium. And when we're saying low flying, how low are we flying? We're, we're flying about um, 100 meters above the ground. So that's about 300 feet above the ground this aircraft is traveling. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's... Pretty. It's a lot closer than it's. What's a you know? What's the typical height of like a, a a commercial airplane by comparison? Oh, you know that's that's quite high up. Probably higher than um, you know some of the highest mountains we have on the planet. Uh, you know, twenty thirty thousand feet. I kind of put Dylan on the spot there a little bit. It's actually about thirty six thousand feet on average. So what does the USGS expect to find? They've identified up to 50 critical minerals for the Missouri and Arkansas State Geological Surveys to target. The list includes things like cobalt, lithium, indium, and manganese, just to name a few. A lot of these uh, critical minerals are used in a lot of green technologies, a lot of wind turbine manufacturing, a lot of solar panels, electric vehicles. The USGS likes to let people know about these low-flying planes because... Well, for one, they're really big planes flying really low to the ground. And two, 
These are completely safe to people and animals who may be on the ground as these planes fly overhead. And while Anne and Dylan might have a general idea of what's underground in this portion of the country, their previous surveys are significantly outdated. Sometimes we're looking forward to seeing things that we don't know about. <laughs> and, and we do have um, an expectation of what we're going to see because this area has been flown with similar geophysical mapping, but as, as far back as the 1940s. So we have a sense of what we're going to see. And what happens is we come in with much higher resolution and higher technology than was used, obviously, in the past. And we refine the signature of those things that we know we expect to map. But there's always surprises. Surveying by the USGS began across southern Missouri and central Arkansas in early November and will be completed by the spring of 2023. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. That was Matthew Moore reporting on that story. He's with me right now. Matthew, one of the questions that people may be wondering, I am, what happens if they find some valuable minerals under the ground? Yeah, I definitely had that question too. And it's a good reminder that the agency is called the United States Geological Survey and not the United States Geological Exploratory Agency. Here's Ann McCafferty again. So the USGS isn't in the business of exploration. We're in the business of providing information that can be used in an exploration sense. So we fly these surveys, we turn the data around, and we publish it. And that data are available to mining industry, to academia, to do further follow-up. One other thing that I think is worth reiterating here is just how long it has been since they've done this. Imaging technology has made some really major leaps since the 1970s and 80s. Just think about how much television technology has changed since the 1970s. This surveying technology will be like going from a tube TV with a physical dial to 4K with nothing in between. We come in with much higher resolution and higher technology than was used, obviously, in the past. And we refine the signature of those things that we know we expect to map. But there's always surprises. I can't wait to hear what some of those surprises are. Yeah, I know. It's going to be fun to to hear about that. Matthew, thanks for your reporting about this. Thanks, Kyle. Ahead on our show, flu season in Arkansas. So it looks like we're at least going to be, you know, up around those levels of people dying from influenza this season, uh, as opposed to the low number that that died last flu season. That story ahead on today's show. This week, the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees unanimously elected a new chancellor, Charles Robinson. The Arkansas Department of Education released the latest batch of grades for schools in Arkansas, and the Arkansas legislature confirmed Senator Bart Hester of Cave Springs would be the next president pro tem of the state Senate. We covered all of those items earlier this week on Ozarks at Large. But we can't cover everything. Here's a brief survey of some other news from the week. Yvette Murphy-Irby is stepping down as vice chancellor for diversity equity, and inclusion at the University of Arkansas. She'll return to the faculty of the School of Social Work on December 31st. Angela Mosley-Montz, currently the vice chancellor of DEI on campus, will be Murphy Irby's successor on an interim basis. And John English, vice chancellor for research and innovation at the U of A since November 2020, is returning to the school's College of Engineering faculty on December 31st. A national search will take place while Margaret Sova McCabe serves as the interim vice chancellor for research and innovation. And the Arkansas Razorback soccer team is playing in cold weather tonight in the second round of the NCAA national tournament. The Razorbacks face Ohio State with the winner advancing to Sunday's Sweet 16 matchup in Fayetteville. Meanwhile, both Arkansas cross-country teams run tomorrow in the NCAA championships in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So there's this free spirit that still permeates New Orleans society, the true melting pot where people really did get together. And, you know, getting together doesn't mean that we always have to agree. We don't even have to like each other. It's just a question of being respectful of what we all have to contribute. And that's what we have here in New Orleans. Join me for an interview with Delphio Marsalis. I'm Robert Ginsburg. This week on Shades of Jazz. Shades of Jazz, tonight at 10 on 91.3 and tomorrow morning beginning at 11 on KUAF3.
Today, election results for the 2022 midterms are scheduled to be certified in Arkansas. That certification will mean officially four proposed changes to Arkansas's constitution will be vanquished. Michael Hiblin with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock asked Kristen Higgins, program associate with the University of Arkansas Public Policy Center, about what election data tells us about the blanket rejection by Arkansas voters. We had four ballot questions, recreational marijuana, religious freedom, a proposal to let the legislature call itself into session, and a proposal that would have raised the threshold to 60% for passage of ballot questions. You noted this was the first time since 1960 that voters have rejected all ballot questions during an election. What do you make of uh, so many people not making a decision about these questions while voting in other races? It really goes back to proving uh, past historical research on election turnout. Uh, we see that people tend to skip over a ballot issue if they're unfamiliar with it, if they haven't been able to do their research on it, um, or if the language is confusing to them. So we have seen that in the past where voters skip over or undervote is what we call it in the election world, they fill out the rest of their ballot, but they skip a ballot issue or two and turn in their ballot. Uh, we saw this year that issue one had the highest skip rate of all four ballot issues. And issue one was the proposal that would have allowed the legislature to call themselves into special session. So to me, you know, I thought, well, that title actually was pretty simple. So it's, it's a little surprising to see that that was the one that had uh, the fewest uh, votes cast on it compared to the other ones. Uh, the issue that received the most votes, of course, was <laughs> marijuana, whether or not to legalize it in Arkansas. And that was not surprising. Uh, some of the early polling showed that issue four was you know expected to pass, but then we saw some of the polling closer to election day that it was going to fail. Uh, so I'm not surprised that the majority of people voted on that one. Uh, but ballot title alone, issue four had the longest title and the most confusing title. Issue one had one of the shortest ones, but people skipped it the most. Well, I, I like to think of myself as being an educated voter, and I knew what was going to be on the poll. But then I started reading through the language. Uh, even knowing what to expect, it can be a little bewildering. We have 10 minutes under state law to be there to fill out the ballot. And if you introduce uh, electronic voting machines, that can cause even more hesitancy for people. But this is a historical trend. Uh, every election cycle, we see thousands of Arkansans skipping over the ballot issues. This time around with, with issue one, we saw 54,052 voters completely skipped issue one. But back in uh, 2020, we had 82,430 voters skip an issue that would have increased the number of counties where ballot issue groups had to campaign in and collect voter signatures. So it's not the first time we saw it. Um, in 2016, we saw 81,700 and something voters skip. The most in the past uh, 10 years was in 2012. We saw 92,000 and some voters skip issue two that dealt with sales tax, bond debt, retirement plans, some very confusing issues. You also looked at voter turnout with those uh, who are registered to vote. What did we see here last week? Well, going based on the numbers uh, that the Secretary of State's office was reporting, we saw about 50.4% of registered voters turn out in Arkansas uh, last week and from early voting. While we are at the lower end nationwide, uh, when it comes to registered voters turning out, you have to think about also the number of adults living in Arkansas. So people 18 and older, we have 1.7 million registered voters in a state with at least 2.3 million adults. So we actually had about 39% of the number of adults living in Arkansas turn out. Anything else stick out to you from the data you've been looking at? 
Montgomery County had the highest voter turnout of, of all the different counties for the election overall. And then Crittenden County near West Memphis had the lowest voter turnout. And that was actually the second time they ranked at the bottom when it came to a midterm. So I'm not really sure what's going on uh, in the West Memphis area, why they have such low voter turnout. Any thoughts about maybe what officials ought to be doing to try and improve voter turnout? It seems to be like a yo-yo when it comes to the uh, bigger presidential elections versus the midterm election like we just saw. Uh, It's been inching up over the past couple of decades in terms of voter turnout, but so have other states. So we continue to remain toward the bottom when it comes to voter engagement. Kristen Higgins, Program Associate with the University of Arkansas Public Policy Center, talked with Michael Hiblin from our partner station KUAR in Little Rock. The Arkansas Department of Health is reporting very high levels of flu activity, and health officials are warning people to take precautions ahead of the holidays. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. Arkansas reported 14 flu-related deaths since October. That's according to numbers from the Arkansas Department of Health, which released its weekly flu report on Wednesday. 7,000 people in the state have tested positive for the virus, but officials say that number only reflects a small portion of actual cases. Dr. Joel Tumlison, medical director of immunizations at the department, says this year's season started earlier than usual with a high level of spread. By comparison, last flu season, which was mild, only had 30 um, influenza deaths total for the whole uh, flu season. Um, You know, a kind of average number might be around 100 to 120 uh, in a normal, quote, normal flu season, 120 people die. So it looks like we're at least going to be, you know, up around those levels of people dying from influenza this season, uh, as opposed to the low number that, that died last flu season. So far this flu season, 183 people have been hospitalized with the virus. 52 of those were within the last week. A number of hospitals are reporting, yeah, we've got quite a few uh, influenza patients um, right now um, that we're taking care of, amongst other uh, respiratory viruses that are spreading. Um, And interestingly, not very many of those hospitalizations uh, right now are due to COVID. Um, You know, we've got rather low levels right now of COVID circulation in the state, um, which is good, uh, but there are a number of other viruses that are making people sick too, and some of those people uh, get hospitalized as well. He says the increased spread of flu and other respiratory viruses is likely due to relaxed pandemic safety precautions like masking and social distancing. You know, there was just easier opportunity for the virus to spread early. Other people, experts, have speculated, you know, in the the previous two flu seasons were very mild because of those precautions, right? Especially 2020 uh, into 21 was basically no flu season at all. So not nearly as many people got ill with influenza during the last two years and therefore don't have any level of leftover immunity um, that they might otherwise have had. Tomlinson says while the virus seems to be more infectious this season, he says the symptoms are not more dangerous than any previous year's flu. We've not seen any real signs that um, this uh, influenza A uh, virus that's spreading now is causing a way higher percentage of people who get it to go to the hospital. He says the Department of Health expects to see an uptick in cases going into the Thanksgiving holiday next week and urges people to take precautions, especially for those who are more susceptible to the flu. If, you know, there's a family where people are particularly prone to the flu, say elderly people or little bitty babies or people with certain health conditions like lung disease that make them uh, prone to have a severe case of the flu if they catch it, then maybe that family wants to wear masks at their gathering when they're indoors. And I would say go ahead and get your flu vaccine if you haven't already got it. Now, we say, you know, it takes generally about 14 days from when you get vaccinated to have the full protection that a vaccine will offer you. Uh, But it's going to be ramping up during that time, and we've still got a week uh, before Thanksgiving comes. So um, going out and getting your flu vaccine uh, today, tomorrow, would be a good idea to offer you protection. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents Delfeo Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, Sunday, November 20th at 7 p.m. A member of the Marsalis family of musicians, Delfeo is an acclaimed trombonist who leads the brass-heavy Uptown Jazz Orchestra in a concert paying tribute to the sounds of New Orleans. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 
443-5600 for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Jeff Ayer's first novel, Skate the Thief, is a crime thriller, a rollicking fantasy adventure, and a love letter to reading and writing. Jeff teaches in the Rogers School District. He earned his English degree at the University of Arkansas. He says his desire to write fiction dates back to middle school. When he was in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio recently, I asked him about going from wannabe novelist in middle school to published novelist now. It was a lot of um, stories that were written and will never see the light of day. It was a lot of... Uh, the literary equivalent of doodling, just mm-hmm. practicing, getting better at it, um, reading books and then rereading them. Um, I would read books the first time for enjoyment and then read them a second time as a writer, like really looking at it like, how did they do this? I would come away thinking, I like this character. Why? And then going back and trying to see what the author did to make me like that character. Um, and so... I did that for years. I didn't try seriously trying to get published until after college. Um, and my first attempt at that, I you know, had dozens and dozens of rejections of my manuscript um, before I put that one away. And I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. Because <laughs> after, 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 I don't know, the 50th wow. rejection letter, um, you start to think, Maybe I should just do this for myself, and these are just stories that I write and spend my time doing, but nobody has to see them. But um, So I tried putting it away for a while, and um, that didn't work. I found myself getting really frustrated all the time, um, just like irritable because I had ideas rattling around in my head, and then I went for it again with a different book. I recognized the problems with my first book. Um, and put myself out there again. I was eventually picked up by uh, Thinklings, uh, an independent uh, publisher, smaller publisher. I think I was their third published book. When you would go back and read the books that you liked and you were analyzing them, like what did this writer do? Any of the rejection letters help you analyze what you're doing, or would they just say, no, thanks, we're going a different direction? Most of them were that sort of form, just Mm -hmm. a boilerplate sort of thing. Um, They didn't come with a lot of feedback. Some did. Um, And one of them that did helped me um, realize what I was doing wrong with um, pacing. I think I I had two letters that had any actual feedback. um, And one of them uh, helped me with the pacing of the story. And then the other helped me start thinking of the direction the story was going um, just based on where it started in the middle and then there wasn't really a payoff and that helped me start uh, thinking of stories more structurally. Um, So while those rejection letters, all of them hurt, but they were actually helpful. Well, and bless the the two editors or absolutely that, that d- took time to <laughs> yeah. to do that. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful for that uh, because I know it, they get thousands of you know uh, submissions a day that they have to sift through, um, and the fact that they took the time to read enough of it to tell me what I could do better. I'm very grateful for that. Well, let's talk about Skate the Thief, sure, because. This is such a wildly original story. And to to come up with it and then to flesh it out, I mean, Skate's original, but the predicament, the 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 path of the story is wildly original. Well, th- thank you. Um <laughs> I I'm very proud of Skate. I I I love that book. Um I continue to love that book. I I'll, I'll talk about it to anybody who who wants to, to talk about it. Um, the, the idea for Skate, I, I can remember it very clearly. Um, a friend of mine uh, and I were talking about um, uh, the idea of someone getting stabbed and how unpleasant an experience that must be. Uh, and my friend said, what if it wasn't? And I thought, 
what? <laughs> and that was just a throwaway comment on his part. Uh, but I thought about it for days and I started writing out the first scene. And uh, that's where um, Skate came from was this person doing the stabbing and uh, spoilers, uh, finding uh, that the uh, person was unaffected by it, which is one of the earliest scenes in the book. Um, and it just grew from there. Uh, and this could have been one of those that I picked up, started, and then left alone. But it was one of those that wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, I kept thinking about where this story was going to go, and it eventually fleshed out into the into the book after several rewrites, restarts, and uh, revisions. When you found the publisher and they said, yes, we're interested, did they take it on scene, or did you have rewrites and... Right. So when um, they accepted, uh, they asked for the manuscript, they read the whole thing, and they said, yes, we like this. I thought, well, that's great. Um, and then they, uh, a week or two later, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send it to our editor. She'll get back to you with notes, which is wonderful for me because I don't have an editor. This was all me mm-hmm. up to this point. Um, and so... I believe the process went submit manuscript, get revisions back, make the revisions, send it back, get another round of revisions back, then send that back. And then the last round was uh, typos, uh, grammar, uh, little commas and stuff like that. They got to be cleaned up. Um, But overall, between the time of me writing my first draft and submitting it, I went through four drafts. Uh, of the book before publication how do you how do you what's the genre here not that that matters because it's just a a great story but it's kind of thriller it's kind of crime mystery it's kind of wizardry Uh, oh yeah yeah i think if you go into a bookstore or library you'd expect to see this on the fantasy shelf okay i think i think anything with wizards in it just automatically goes there it doesn't matter anything else that you're doing um and I, I I think that's just uh, the state of publication right now. Um, if you've got any of those elements in there, you're sort of uh, assumed to be in that genre, which is fine. I'd, I'd consider it a, a fantasy story. Uh, but the great thing about fantasy is you can do all of those other things. You can have a fantasy detective story. You can have a fantasy crime novel. Um, it's that, that big genre has a lot of smaller umbrellas underneath it. Well, let me then ask the balance as writing fantasy, because you can do anything, but that doesn't mean the reader will go along with anything. So how do you keep it on the rails that you think readers will keep? Like, you don't want to take the suspension of disbelief a step too far. Right. Um, And that's one of the things that fantasy writers uh, talk about all the time. You have to keep it uh, consistent. Uh, Make sure that if you've got magic, that the reader is comfortable with what kind of magic are we dealing with. Um, So to pull two big names out, like Lord of the Rings magic is whatever Gandalf needs to do, right? (laughs) It's it's not really clear what the rules are. It's very vague. But that's consistent throughout the story, so it works. Um, Then you take something like Harry Potter, where the rules are really kind of set in stone and consistent. You have to have A, B, and C in order to do it. it it's, you need the wand. You need to say the words. Uh, that, that sort of system, the one where it's much more hammered in, again, as long as it's consistent, people are fine with it. Um, and if you pick up a fantasy book, you're sort of already got your, you've already got your foot in the sure. door of you're willing to put up with this, right? Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, what matters more, I think, is characters. Um, you have to make characters believable, consistent. Um, if they do change over the course of the story, you've got to sell that. Um, the the magic and the dragons and the spells and all the fun stuff about fantasy is secondary to that. If If that's the focus and you don't have those solid characters, you're not going to get reader buy-in. Uh, you've, you've got to make the characters work and work together. The official title is Skate the Thief, then parenthetically, The Rag and Bone Chronicles Book One. 
That's ambitious. You put you I, put it right there in the title I, that there's going to be more. I I, I was planning on a, a four-part series. Uh, part two is on the way. It's with the publisher now. Skate the Seeker. Uh, yes, Skate the Seeker. That's right. Book two, uh, Rag and Bone book two. Um, I'm envisioning it as four. Um, I may scale it back to three, but when I was planning it out, I wanted it to be four. And that's still my plan. Um yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that people who uh, were into skate for, for book one uh, will go along for book two. How, how does marketing work? <laughs> That's the question for the ages. <laughs> so um, I went the traditional publishing route, uh, which means I didn't uh, pay anything to have this uh, done. My publisher covered all the costs. That's that's what that's the traditional model. You sell them the manuscript, they cover the publication and they know what they're doing. I have no idea. But um, it also means they're really behind you. Yes. They're putting mean, their they, money out there. Their money is on the line. It's not my money at all. What's on the line for me is my work. Um, like putting myself out there. Um, they are the ones willing to put forward the money on that in the traditional model. And so because of that, they are uh, responsible for pushing the book. Now, as a smaller publisher, uh, there's limits. Uh, we're not talking, you know, Simon and Schuster or Penguin or anything like those. The big publishing right. names who you know have uh, millions of dollars stored away in a vault somewhere. <laughs> um, so they are limited. They're a startup. Um, I can and I have uh, used some of my money. Uh, for marketing to pay for uh, ads on Facebook and stuff like that. Um, but the idea is getting people to get it off the shelf. That's, uh, that's what marketing is. And that's why, even though we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, we do. Yeah. Uh, we do. And that's, that's, that's why the, and they covered it, they did all of that too. And that's why the, that part of it was so. Uh, helpful to me because I don't know how to get a cover of a book done. I, I don't know anything about any of that. Uh, so self-publishing just wasn't going to be an option uh, for me uh, because I, I wanted it to look good as well as be right. good. And I don't know the, the look good part at all. Have you heard from readers? Uh, yes. Yes. Um, I've got uh, people who have messaged me on social media, uh, emails. Um, they comment on the Facebook page. Uh, people who like it, they or people who read it seem to like it, um, and that's really exciting to see. That's going to be thrilling, yeah. actually. Yeah, that I they chose this book to read, and then it wasn't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I mean, yeah, you that process because there are tens of hundreds of thousands of books to choose from. Oh yeah. Then it's picked, it's finished, and they reach out. I mean that that's a high compliment. That yeah, they they went out of their way to go and tell people how much they like the book, which is that's exciting. Um I have a a fan over in and as far as I know, this is the one geographically most distant uh in India uh who wrote one of the first reviews uh for uh skate and she said it was like one of her favorite books that she's ever read and I ended up getting in contact with her because uh, because of the publishing situation she didn't have access to a physical copy she was just using an e-reader um, and so I was able to get her a, a signed oh, wow. copy of the book um, and then I heard back from her and she just, just you know so excited and again you're absolutely right it's it's just amazing that people who I don't know are picking this up and then reaching out to tell me how good it was and how much they liked it. It's, it's, it's different. It's different because <laughs> it's one thing when your mom says, oh, this oh, is sure. a good book, but it's, it's another thing. Um, if, if a stranger does it. You mentioned that you really started thinking about becoming a published novelist after college. I'm going to take it from the way you put that, that you didn't study you weren't a creative writing major in college? I was an English major. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't get away from us. But <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was on the literature side. I was, I was uh, uh, not, not creative writing. I didn't take a class. I wish I, I would have, you know, in, in retrospect. I think that would have been uh, good, and maybe it would have gotten me started a little sooner. Um, 
and I encourage everybody to take creative writing classes. Um, but yeah, I was I was I was more on the on the uh, reading the published book side and literary criticism and theory and all of that. Do you identify with skate at all? Do you see any of you in skate or skate in you? What I see in skate is a love of thievery. <laughs> well, skate the thief, right? No, yeah, yeah. I, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, in what I see of myself in all of my characters, because they all come from me one way or another, um, there's bits of pieces of me in each of them. Um, so with Skate, um, she struggles knowing what the right thing to do is. That's the most relatable thing I have with her, uh, just knowing what should I do in this situation. Being, fate, being given two choices and... Neither one of them seems obviously the right one to do, and having to struggle with that decision, that's where I saw most of myself in the the main character. Uh, the character that I wrote that I most immediately identify with um, is um, a character in um, her gang that uh-huh. she uh, works with who's just overburdened with paperwork. That was, that's, that's, he, uh, I was like, how am I going to introduce this character? And I, I introduce him being surrounded by towers of mm-hmm. papers that he's dutifully signing away and it's just drudgery. And I've, I've often felt that way whenever I'm dealing with essays or any other, you know, stack of assignments that I've allowed to pile up on my desk. Um, that, that was one of my most empathetic moments. <laughs> Jeff Hare's novel, Skate the Thief, the Rag and Bone Chronicles Book One, is available now. Hi, my name is Paul, your host for the Generic Blue Show, which airs every Friday night at 9 o'clock. Join me this Friday, and we've got two local musician milestones that we're going to be celebrating. We've got the 10-year anniversary of Brickfield's weekly blues therapy sessions, That celebration will be held at the Fayetteville Public Library Wednesday night from 6 till 9, December 21st. And then two days later, the 80th birthday party for Ernie and Earl Kate. That'll be at George's Majestic Lounge Friday, December 23rd. And that show will start at 7 p.m. And again, that's the Generic Blue Show every Friday night at 9 o'clock on KUAF. We'll see you then. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Becca Martin-Brown, the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Well, okay. So you have a full-time job. You did this full-time show at APT, Arkansas Public Theater. Caught up with you just a little bit? Um, The entire last weekend run, I knew I was getting sick. But adrenaline, right? But adrenaline will yeah. get you through. In fact, we had probably our best performances that weekend. Mm-hmm. And then I went home Sunday night and went, oh, I don't think I feel good. Yeah. Hence the reason we didn't talk last week. Exactly. But we're talking now. And it's Christmas. How about the Northwest Arkansas Boutique Show this weekend? How about it? 16th annual event at the Rogers Convention Center. 183 merchants from across the country, although... The founder, Casey Pummel, says that 90% of them are local. Everything from home decor to jewelry to clothing to holiday items to gourmet food. She has a particular passion for candles, and she says there's always an armful you can take away with you. If nothing else, it'll give you ideas and a chance to see other living human beings. There you go. Girls' Night Out is from 5 to 9 tonight. General admission shopping is from 11 to 4.30 today and from 9 to 6 tomorrow. Girls' Night Out, I'm excluded? I think they'd let you in. I don't think it's actually gender-specific. Okay, okay. I think it's just a chance to go with a smaller crowd. And you can find out more at nwaboutiqueshow.com. If you're in the River Valley and you know how to find your way to the Bakery District, Mm -hmm. the Optimist Club has a festival of trees, decorated Christmas trees created by businesses. You can go... And scan a QR code, 
that allows you to vote with some dollars for the tree you like best. And that money goes to youth organizations like the Boys and Girls Clubs, the Children's Shelter, and the Reynolds Cancer Support House. Go to fortsmithoptimist.com. Now, here's a juxtaposition of odd things. Shepherd of the Hills. They're in uh, Branson or Lampy? Branson. Branson. All based around a 1907 novel that I absolutely love by Harold Belwright. Has added a new Christmas show this year. So it's not the characters of this book? No. No. Okay, well, I don't know if it's a sequel or something. It's a Christmas story with the leg lamp. Okay, let me ask you something about Shepherd of the Hills because I've never done this. It's outside, right? Don't you go from stage to stage or, or place to place? Some of it is inside. Okay. I'm assuming that this is inside since I would it's assume December so, or November. It's, it's yeah. cold. Yes. They have several different shows on different stages. But while you're there, you can learn the actual Shepherd of the Hill story, which is the part that I'm enchanted by. I got you. And buy a copy of the book and all of that. But if you want to see Ralphie and his Daisy BB gun and the leg lamp and the Fragile package, it's all at Shepherd of the Hills through December 26th. It comes with dinner. All right. Tickets start at 3475, com. And then here's the short version of all the local Christmas events. Oh, boy. Lights of the Ozarks, 6 o'clock today. Yep. Bentonville lighting. Tomorrow. 4 o'clock, performances start, lighting at 6 o'clock. Victory Film Series, 7 o'clock Saturday at Arkansas Public Theater. They're showing The Nightmare Before Christmas, mm-hmm. $12. Holiday Woodland Wreath Making Workshop, tomorrow at Ozark Folkways. Two stations. In Winslow. $50. Ozarkfolkways.org. Christmas on the Creek, which is a hot cocoa crawl and cycling Santas and live music and a holiday market and pictures with Santa and the lighting of the tallest live Christmas tree in northwest Arkansas all happens November 26th at Turnbow Park on Emma Avenue in Springdale. That is the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And November 23rd, which is Wednesday? Sunday's the 20th. 20, yes. Mannheim Steamroller at the Fort Smith Convention Center. Tickets start at fifty-one fifty, And that ought to hold you till next week. Yes. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Walton Arts Center presents Fran Lebowitz, live and on stage November 29th. Lebowitz is an American author, social commentator, and regular NPR guest. In 2021, Netflix released a documentary series about Lebowitz called Pretend It's a City, directed by Martin Scorsese. She takes the stage for a night of humor and conversation, moderated by KUAF's Kyle Kellams. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Elm Springs. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, and Michael Hiblin. Matthew produced the show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio, too. Kyle, I've actually been to Elm Springs before, so we've got we've got one of these that I can mark off my list. I have been to that one. Well, we're going to get you to all of these. Yeah, of course. All right. Yeah. Have you been to Brashears? No. We'll get you there. Okay. Our Director of Community Management at KUAF is Jasper Logan. And we bring that up because today was another lunch hour. That's right. At uh, KUAF. Yeah, great barbecue, great music. We're going to do more of those, yes. so stay tuned. Also, next week... Um, if you listen to Ozarks at Large, you may have heard, I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago, we had a quiz mm-hmm. about elections. Yes, we did. Well, next week, I've got some questions about Thanksgiving that I want you and Anna Pope to uh, participate in this quiz. That's right. If you enjoyed hearing me make a fool of myself, you did not. then you will enjoy hearing me make a fool of myself again. But uh, So we've got some Thanksgiving questions for you. I will be back with you Sunday morning at 9 with Weekend Ozarks at Large. And we do have uh, new shows for you next week, Thanksgiving week. And you can hear Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 each weekday. That's right. And you can catch us in your podcast feed. Just look for Ozarks at Large on whatever podcast app you like to use. Um, And you can also find us on the web, ozarksatlarge.com. And ask that smart speaker of yours to please play Ozarks at Large so you can hear the most recent edition. All right. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for listening.